Hello everyone, welcome back to WN Movie Talk podcast, which used to be known as We Need to Talk About Movies podcast. We have changed the title because there is another We Need to Talk About Movies podcast and whenever you search for ours, you'd get theirs. So now we are WN Movie Talk. So there you go. But this is a spin-off episode anyway. It's what I like to do every now and again. I watch some films that I own that I haven't watched yet. If you're new to this podcast, then what this is basically, I buy films from charity shops all the time. I buy them at a rate quicker than I can watch them. And now I've stockpiled probably about 200 films and I am slowly working my way through them. So what I do over the course of a couple of weeks, I pick four out, I watch them and then I review them. And then at the end, I come back and say which of the four films I've watched this month I thought was the best. Just a bit of fun, really. And it gets me watching films that I own that I haven't watched yet. So, without further ado, let's get on with the films that I own that I haven't watched yet. You know what time it is? It's time for another film that I own that I haven't watched been a while i don't believe it it's another western <laughs> it's like every month i have a western in there it's the sister brothers which is a western that stars joaquin phoenix and oh god i can't remember his name now thomas how see oh you know the chap out was where is it let me find it before i try talking shit the Sister Brothers, alphabetical, as long as it's on the shelf. Here we go. The Sister Brothers. John C. Riley, Jaquin Phoenix, Jack Joaquin Phoenix, Jake Gillinghall, and Horiz Ahmed. So, interesting cast. Based on Patrick DeWitt's acclaimed novel of the same name, two brothers, Eli, Joaquin Phoenix, and Charlie, sisters, John C. Riley are hired to kill a prospector who is stolen from their boss. A reimagining of the cinematic western as a dangerous, witty, and emotionally cathartic exploration of what it means to be a man. Called Sisters. <laughs> uh, on the front it says, Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley are the western double act you never knew you needed. So, yeah, I'm going to watch a western. Would you care to hear what I think of it afterwards? I hope so, because that's how this works. See you soon. Cheese. Okay. The Sisters Brothers was a really unconventional Western. Still a lot of the usual Western tropes, but it was certainly stylish. From the outset, from the very first shots, you got this sense that it's you're watching a different take on the Western genre. It starts off with a wide-angle shot of an old farmhouse and it's dark you just hear the gunshots and see the gunfire and the sister brothers are there sort of working their way through this house assassinating people and um you don't like you don't really see anything because it's dark and then they kill everyone and then at the end of the job eli john c Riley says so how many people do you think we killed then to which Charlie, Joaquin Phoenix, says, oh, about six. Yeah, John C. Riley says, yeah, we really fucked that up. <laughs> so there's, there's this banter between them. You really get the belief that they're siblings in this. It's almost, 
they're not like, but you know, there's such a difference between the the two brothers. It's almost like Del Boy and Rodney. So dissimilar, but you believe that they're brothers, and these two are no different. And they're, they're all great in this film as well. The performances was really good. But John C. Riley is sort of older, longer in the tooth, wiser. He's a bit more sensitive. He's protective of his brother. But he's got this rough edge to him as well. You know, they look a bit dirty and a bit rough around the edges. And then you've got Charlie, Joaquin Phoenix's character. And he's, he's a bit more ruthless. He's a bit of a drunk, a bit reckless. He's enjoying the job a lot more than Eli is. You know, Eli wants out. Eli wants nothing but an easy life. And they're sort of trapped working for the Commodore. And sort of the whole film, they're in the shadow of the Commodore. And they've got this job where they've got to go and meet Jake Gillinghall's character, who has captured Riz Ahmed's character. And I say captured. I mean, they're... The Riz Ahmed and Jake Gillinghall storyline is great because they're a lot more educated, well-spoken. You know, Jake Gillinghall, especially as the sort of the detective, he's writes a journal and he speaks fine English, and he's even got an English accent in there. And they're like refined, and he he meets Raz, Riz Ahmed, befriends him, and is going to like hand him over to the sister brothers. But then they really do befriend each other. Riz Ahmed stolen from the Commodore and he's got this formula that basically the Commodore wants that they put into water and it makes gold glow and then they can mine the gold. And Riz Ahmed wants to go and make his own money and basically the Commodores wants to know the formula, wants to steal it from him. But Jake Gillinghall gets to know Riz Ahmed and they become friends and business partners they want to go on a business together so then they're escaping the sisters brothers as well the sisters brothers continue the chase it's really good yeah it just never at any point in this film does it go in the direction that you quite think it's going to i mean i could just ruin it for you here throughout i don't know if you've seen it but later on when the sisters brothers catch up with i can't remember the characters names riz ahmed and jake gillinghall you think oh this is going in that direction but then again something happens and takes a twist that you didn't quite see coming um and even in the end when you know that the only thing left for the sisters brothers to do is to go and kill the commandant even that doesn't work out how you think it's going to it's just really great i liked the way it sort of throughout the whole film it coaxes you with the usual traits and tropes of the Western genre, but then just twists them and turns them on their head a bit, you know, and it plays with us as an audience. You know, it's a real fresh look at the Western, but it's at the same time, it's, it is a Western. It's great. It feels like a Western. I mean, the scene where they're panning for gold, it's a, it's a highlight scene. You know, you see the formula now working and they're all working together and, it goes from being this scene of wonder and magic to becoming a real harsh and horrific scene. Oh, it escalates really quickly. There's a lot of like little bits in here throughout as well, which make you think like um, 
when Eli buys his first toothbrush, he sees it in a shop and he doesn't quite understand what it is. And he's looking at it puzzled. And then someone comes, the shopkeeper comes up, tells him what it is and how to use it. And then you see, you see him at home that night with the toothbrush in his hand, brushing his teeth, but reading the instructions of how to brush his teeth whilst he's doing it. And then when they meet up with Jake Gillinghall and that, and Jake Gillinghall in the morning, as Eli's brushing his teeth, Jake Gillinghall comes out and he's brushing his teeth. And it's almost, you know, they look at each other as if, oh, you've got one of them new gadgets as well. I love that thought of things being invented, you know, and things we take for granted being new. Uh, another bit is like where they meet this, ho- they go to this hotel, this big fancy hotel, and there's uh, hot baths and flushing toilets. And they just, they can't believe what they're seeing, you know. Eli's like, Charlie, Charlie, come and look at this flushing the toilet so you know then the brother sisters they got this bickering rivalry between them but at the same time they're united in blood and you wonder how you know eli says about we got our dad's blood bad blood and then charlie says yeah well he was a drunk and you know that eli is a drunk as well and you think oh is this gonna be a a trigger for things you know they got all this hanging over them but it's it's all things to keep you thinking where it could go and it's not red herrings. I mean, it, a lot of it does take you in certain directions, gets you to the point you're going, but you just can't quite see where it's going. You've got an idea and then it just swerves off at the end. It's great. But it's a film about change of mentality where the United States, it's at that point where the Wild West is on the brink of becoming something better. And Jake Gillinghall and Rizal made a they talk of this new democracy, a new way of living. And that's their ideal is to sort of have a place where people are respectful of each other and not so greedy. And there's a democracy and you sort of get that sense that this ideal society was in within grasp. And although Charlie is probably not so keen on it, you can tell that Eli really, he'd love it. The whole way through the film, he's got this, this handkerchief or this uh, scarf that's but was given to him by a woman and he, he keeps sort of remembering that and he wants to open up a, a clothes shop and he doesn't want to be this killing. They've been forced into this, their hands been forced and now they're trapped in this lifestyle and they've got to keep doing it. But yeah, do you know what? I, I really, really enjoyed this film. And yeah, this is possibly one of my, the fav- my favourite westerns, certainly my favourite modern western I've watched recently. I, a lot better than 310 to Yuma. I know The Unforgiven isn't meant to be a classic, but it wasn't my favourite, if I'm honest. But this, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thoroughly recommend it. What up, jeez? What time is it? It's time for another film that I own that I haven't watched yet. Got my little container here full of films that I own that I haven't watched yet. Titles. Hundreds of little scraps of paper. So I'm having a bit of a rummage. I've got one. Lucky number Slevin. Now, Nath mentioned this film in a podcast back along. A long time ago. I think it's a fit when we were talking about Six Sense. So what was that? Our second film. That's mental. It doesn't seem that long ago. But, yeah, one of our earlier films. Uh, so, a film with a twist. Lucky number 11. Let me just go and find the case. Here 
we go. Lucky number seven. Josh Hartnett, Morgan Freeman, Sir Ben Kingsley, Lucy Liu, Stanley Tukey and Bruce Willis star in a film by Paul McGuigan. Lucky number seven. Stylish, funny and clever. Excellent thriller overflowing with cool. So this was noughties, was it? The end of the 90s into the noughties, I should imagine. It's that time, isn't it? A lot of gang, a lot of crime films, good crime films, sort of just after Pulp Fiction and Lockstock and all that sort of time. I think it was around then, wasn't it? A case of mistaken identity lands Slevin, Josh Hartnett, in the middle of a war being plotted by two of the city's most infamous crime bosses, the rabbi, Ben Kingsley, and the boss, Morgan Freeman. Slevin is under constant surveillance by relentless detective Bukowski, Stanley Tukey, as well as, or Tucci, I don't know, Tukey, as well as the infamous assassin good cat, Bruce Willis, finds himself having to hatch his own ingenious plot to get to them before they get him. So, yeah, got a bit of a sort of a sounding, like a bit of a farcical gangster action plot. Uh, yeah, sounds like it could be fun. So, these films are hit and miss, you know. Sometimes they're really great. And sometimes I find them a bit too shit. Watched Get Shorty back along, and I really enjoyed that one. Um, but, like, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, similar sort of thing. Really didn't like that. I just didn't get on with that. So anyway, this isn't Get Shorty or Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. This is Lucky Number 11. So I'm going to stick that on now, and then I'll come back after I've watched it, and let you know just exactly what I thought about it. All right? Right, that's what I'm doing. Chase. Right, lucky number 11. Right, yeah, where do I start? Hello, this is Trevor from the future, or the present. Before I get on with the lucky number 11 review, I would just like to let you know that I am going to spoil it all the way through. Um, The plot sort of spoils itself, and I can't really talk about it without spoiling it in the way that I want to. So, just to be warned, uh, this will be spoiled. Thank you. Cheers. Right, yeah, where do I start? Um, This film of mistaken identity or confused identity certainly has a confused identity. It never felt like it knew exactly what it was trying to be. Was it serious? Was it playful? Was it gimmicky? It was all of those things. And a bit silly. Uh, but good fun. And sort of well made. It was cra- well crafted, really. But, um, you know, sort of based a bit Tarantino-esque. Uh, I mean, this was coming a few years after, like, the main sort of Tarantino season. When was this? 2006? But, yeah, it sort of had a Tarantino feel to it. A lot of the dialogue was very tarantino Esque, but a bit too clever for its own good. The film thought it was more clever than it actually was. And again, there was twists and turns all the way through it, but it was obvious. You can see where it's going from the outset. When you first meet Bruce Willis and he's at the airport and he's talking to this chap in the airport terminal about the, the Kansas City shuffle and the story about the fixed race. And then you see this 
this man who's betting on a fixed race and he's with his son and he won't take his son into the thing and he leaves his son in the car, goes to fit, bet on this race. And then this fixed race fails, the horse falls and this man owes all this money to the gangs and you see him get beaten up and the kids got taken away and he's killed and the wife is killed and the supposedly the son is killed as well but you never see the son get killed and you never see the assassin um and i just thought all right so that boy is going to be the main guy it just you could tell that because why else would they show that and then when you see slevin turning up at this other bloke's house and it's a mistaken identity so then slevin gets taken to the boss which is uh, morgan freeman is a big gangster and he's told he's got to kill the fairy who's the rabbi's son who's ben kingsley is the rabbi and they're rivals and they live in buildings across the road from each other and they stare at each other in each other's buildings and neither of them have left their building in 20 years but then as he leaves the boss's house then you see bruce willis there and later on ben kingsley calls him over he wants him as well and he mistaken him for the same guy and then you see him leave there he owes thirty thousand dollars and he says i can get it to you gives him a time to get it and then as he leaves you see bruce willis turning up there as well so you think right so bruce willis character he says then the next clue is the kid and i have unfinished business so i'm like all right so he's the one who's supposed to kill the boy and he hasn't killed him and now they're in cahoots so figured that but you're watching it all unfold and then it's like half an hour before it ends that twist sort of is revealed you see josh hartnett actually kill the fairy and you think you know is he gonna do it isn't he gonna do it and then he kills him and you're like oh yeah of course he is because he's in cahoots with bruce willis I don't know. It was a bit a bit gimmicky, this. And a lot of the dialogue was a bit a bit over the top. Everyone talking in riddles and questions and just clever words uh, back and forth. It just seemed a bit... Hmm, a bit irritating in places. A bit too much. And then it's like... It's, it reminded me a bit of the usual suspects, but not as clever. And in the end, it's like, oh, the Slevin McCleverer or something. Stanley Tukey's the policeman who's investigating him and he's on the phone to his boss or someone's on the phone to him saying, oh, you won't believe it, this Slevin guy. Oh. And it turns out he's not called Slevin. The horse was called Slevin that the bet was made on all these times. So it's like, well, yeah, we could see that coming, really. So it's like the whole end half hour is just taking it's time to get to a point that i could see pretty much at the beginning um it's got to be a pretty good twist and well hidden to sort of catch you out if you can read a film um and this to me wasn't you know and the, the slevin the cleverer twist oh the no it's the horse's name it's like the kaiser soze twist in the usual suspects but not Nowhere near as effective. Um, and I mean, even the cop, Tukey, was, you know, Stanley Tukey was in on it as well. And then they killed Lucy Lou. But 
who's who's sort of having a re- relationship with Joss Hartnett. I'm ruining everything in this. Spoilers all the way through this, I'm sorry. And you think, why have they killed her? And then after she's killed and she turns up alive, then it shows you the flashback of Bruce Willis saying, oh, she's seen me, I've got to kill her. Which, to me, came in the wrong order. It's like, shouldn't we have seen that? And then it's like extra tension. You think, oh, no, he's got to kill her. But to bring that bit in after you know that she survives, there's no tension there at all. You know, it was just all all a bit, yeah, that just seemed a bit pointless and a bit in the wrong order. And it's like everything had to tie together. And there had, there's so many twists. So like, oh, she had a, a bulletproof vest and he's, so he had to warn her. But you know that. You know, every twist, you know before it's revealed. It just just seemed a bit of a strange film, and but it wasn't bad. It was it was enjoyable. Um, bit of a black comedy, a bit noirish. The, the soundtrack was good. The score was quite good. But it would go from being serious to sort of mischievous and playful. Um, you know, some bits of this reminded me a bit of like the Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould. Um, you know, it's a bit like a detective at first, sort of going from one story to the other. A bit El Mariachi, but inevitably not any of those things. It's it's trying to be too many films at once and trying to imitate these films. And to me, it just, it was a mediocre film at best with some good actors in it doing not really good performances. You know, mediocre performances. Ben Kingsley was mediocre in it. Morgan Freeman was mediocre in it. Bruce Willis was pretty shit in it. Just doing his Bruce Willis. Josh Hartnett was a bit fun in it, sort of embellishing it. But it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say, really. I just couldn't understand, you know, if Bruce Willis was had to be called in at the beginning to kill the kid because no one else would do it. Why couldn't he do it, you know, if he was that cold assassin? So then he befriends the boy and raises him, which we're supposed to believe. So he's like the assassin with the heart. Um, and like when they show the flashback of the boy and he's like, can I go home now? And it's, it's like, he doesn't seem to be that scared and he doesn't seem to be that bothered. It just, I don't know, nothing rang true. Just a bit of nonsense. Um, the whole Lucy Lou thing as well, how she had the bullet professor. He's going to shoot you right here. How does he know she's going to shoot? Because we see him shooting other people through the head. So what makes Slevin so sure that he's going to shoot Lucy Lou uh, in the chest and not in the head? It just... I don't know, it's all convenient. All these plots and twists were convenient, but they wasn't built up so much as given away before they were revealed and then explained after making it more ineffective. I don't know, yeah, it just it was a hit, bit of a hit and a miss, this film. I don't know. Good fun, I suppose, but I don't know. It's like when you see a, a DVD case like this and you can sort of tell type of film it is by the type of newspaper quotes and who they are from. Four Star, News of the World, Utterly Unmissable, Daily Star, Four Star, Mail and Sunday, you know? It's it's all the trash papers giving it the four stars. So you know it's going to be just junk food for the brain dead. 
without putting any of you down, if you like the film, I just, I need a bit more believability. You know, I want to believe a film to be, or if I don't believe it, I want to be not second guessing it and not guessing it. I need to be, think I'm going in one direction. And then, like they say, what is it they call it? The Kansas City Shuffle. They say, well, you look to the right and they take you to the left or whatever the fuck he says at the beginning. Whereas this, they go, look over here. And you know, you think, oh, you're distracting me because something's going on over there. They sort of give it all away. They give you uh, too many clues. Ah, anyway, I'm just rambling on now. I, I got nothing new to say about it. Uh, it was all right. It was enjoyable, but not perfect by a long shot. Anyway, I wonder what we'll be watching next. Hello, everyone. So I'm getting me pot out. Having a rummage. Oh, God, I've spilt them everywhere. What am I doing here? Right. I've got one, but it's connected to another one. Let me try and... Right, that's it. One on its own. Lid going back on, so don't spill them again. And the next film I shall be watching is... Bound. Right, Bound. Bit of a thriller. By the makers of the uh, the Matrix. This is the film they'd made before the Matrix. Bound. Gina Gershon, Jennifer Tilly, and Joey Pants. Joe Pantolonia. Pantole. Joe Pantoliano. Bound. The full uncut version. Now, I might have seen the tail end of this a long time ago, around the time that the Matrix was coming out of the cinema. I think I saw the tail end of it on Channel 4 one night, late one night. Thought it looked quite good, but I never got around to watching it again. So it's the Wachowski brothers, who are now the Wachowski sisters. Free world, can do what they want. Um, and they got a new Matrix coming out, actually, so that's a bit of a coincidence that this one has been pulled out now. So, the back cover says, In their world, you can't buy freedom, but you can steal it. There's $2 million in a suitcase on a desk in an apartment in Chicago. Caesar, Joey Pants, launders money for the mob. Violet, Jennifer Tilly, is his alluring mafia mole. Corky, Gina Gershon is an ex-con who just got out of the joint. What's the last thing that could come between a sleazy wise guy like Caesar and all that money? A couple of women with bodies to die for and brains to match. They become engulfed in a physical attraction that spurs them to relieve Violet's boyfriend of the two million in cash. Corky and Violet are about to learn the meaning of trusting someone with your life. And Caesar? He's about to learn a little something about women. In the end, it all comes down to one question. Who can you trust? So, another sort of mob-styled whodunit who's... I think this one looks a bit more gritty than Lucky Number Seven. Not so gimmicky. We'll have to see. Looks quite interesting. It has been on my shelf for about 15 years and I've never sort of drawn myself to watch it again. Uh, I think sort of the Matrix Reloaded put me off 
wanting to watch anything of theirs again. But let's have a look. See what it's about. See what it's like. And I'll come back afterwards and we will discuss. Thank you very much. Chase. All right. So I just watched Bound. Um, Bukowski Brothers. Uh, I can't. I don't think I've ever seen any of their anything else since The Matrix or before. I think I've probably only seen The Matrix of theirs until now. Um, I thought Bound was a great thriller, considering it's just it's sort of a minimal. Uh, it's sort of a minimal story. There's not many characters in it. It's basically just set in between two apartments, which are both next door to each other. Uh, Jennifer Tilly as Violet in one, and Gina Gershon is Corky. They meet at the beginning when Gina Gershon's come in to sort of renovate this apartment. She's taken on the, this new apartment. <laughs> the, the opening scenes actually gave me a sort of a sense of Twin Peaks. It had a sort of a playful, sort of jazzy riff. Um, very much like the original sort of first couple of series of Twin Peaks. You know, I don't know if you watched Twin Peaks, but the, the, the character Audrey, whenever she was sort of walking sexily around, sort of plotting and scheming, she was. they always had this playful sort of music to accompany her. And you got that sense with these two women. Jennifer Tilly was very much like that sort of character, wearing black, sultry clothes, tight, dresses and uh figure hugging dresses you know and she was sort of a femme fatale it was quite a bit it was noirish it was it had its own style though that's what i like i mean i'm talking about this now not twin peaks but considering like this was sort of around the time that everything else was basing itself on tarantino films i think this had its own style it didn't have all the snappy dialogue like you have in a, a Tarantino film. It's quite a leisurely pace. Um, but yeah, I thought it's, it's really quite interesting. A lot of the visual style, especially of the characters and how they dress, you know, Gina Gershon at first in his massive leather jacket looks way too big for her. As Corky, she's sort of like a, a bit of a, a man in a woman's body, really. She is a lesbian, you know, is about their lesbian relationship, as well as being about, you know, the mafia and a bit of a, a heist movie. Not a heist, but, you know, they're stealing money off of Violet's or partner, Joey Pantano, Pantaleone. It, yeah, in the opening scenes, you got, she's in leather, Violet's in, in leather in the elevator. And then the bloke in the long trench coat, the gangster that she's with. And it, yeah, looks a bit matrixy. Everyone's sort of dressing matrixy, you know. But yeah, as I said, Gina Gershon's character. I mean, this story isn't nothing new. It has been done before. It was done well. It's not, you know, it's it's, it's a basic B-movie conning money out of a gangster plot the the girl running away with the guy but they the difference is that it's the girl running away with a girl and Gina Gershon is very much the bloke the way she swaggers into the pub you know she goes into a bar and she's swaggering and she's drinking her bottle like a bloke and she says I'm just here to get laid you know and it's you could just put a man acting in her role and you wouldn't you know it wouldn't feel out of place but it's unique to see this story with the sort of the lesbian touch especially for back when it was created uh, i mean she even sleeps in wife once she's a real bloke bloke's bloke um but it is very 
tongue in cheek how Violet calls her around because she's lost her ring or a necklace or something, an earring or something in the sink. And Gina Gershon's there, sort of come round to repair her sink. <laughs> you know, it's a real porno sort of introduction. And then they get on, and Violet's like, "Oh, have you seen my tattoo?" And showing her, she's getting basically getting her breast out and letting her. Oh, why don't you feel it? It's quite quite a sort of erotic sex scene um, or two. Um, you know, they do get straight on with it, but it, it like I say, it is corny, it is tongue in cheek, and you can't help feeling that. The I don't know, if you'd have watched this then, you'd think, oh, God, these guys, you know, they know they're making this film. They obviously, a couple of hormonal blokes making this movie and, uh, oh, let's have a good lesbian sex scene. But now you know that they are both um, women. So it sort of puts a different spin on how you read the film. It's like, yeah, you know, are they championing the, like, let's have a, a good woman lead story here, you know? Um so it, the role reversal seems a lot more significant now than it would have when they were the Bukowski brothers, you know, knowing what we know now. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's considerably raunchy. Jennifer Tilly is absolutely stunning all the way through this. And she sort of plays it, like I say, like the femme fatale, she's cool, whispery laid back and uh joey pants is her husband i call him joey pants <laughs> joey pantaleone is great as caesar the gangster husband of hers and there's like some violent scenes uh really well done um you see gershon on her side of the wall fixing her sink and then you hear through the toilet a fudding and you see her toilet vibrating and on the other side, Joey Pants and his mates are just smashing this bloke's head into the toilet, trying to find out where the money is. And Joey, Joey Pantaleone is, is fantastic in this. I thought it was a great role for him. Uh, one of his first lead roles, but you, you'd have seen him in films like Memento. Uh, he's in The Matrix as well. And The Sopranos. He's in The Sopranos. He's great at playing this sort of wormy little character. He's always trying to worm his way out of situations and in this film he is exactly that you know they've got this great plot to steal the money to frame him for the the crime thinking that he once he realizes the money's gone it looks like he's been set up and he will escape for his life but of course he doesn't go down easily he's like no if i do that they'll realize i've you know it was they'll think it was me so situation gets worse and he keeps trying to think his way out and it's really good the tension in the film is really great like i say it's not the most original story but it is done very well it's there's some really good interesting shots the editing the musical score it's like i say it was playful at the beginning but it gets quite dramatic which does help but they know when to drop the score there's some scenes where it's real tense when the gangsters turn up to try and find out what's going on you know the silence in the scenes is just you really get lost in the scene in the atmosphere the mu- there's no music to take you out they do sort of use that internal soundscape so it's like it's in his head and he's concentrating and it's like close-ups of his face and his eyes and he's sweating and yeah, really well, really well made. Like, and there's a shot in there when he opens up the case and he realizes it's empty. Season, he sort of staggers off, and he, the camera sticks to him, and it's sort of like he's staggering back, and it's like a GoPro, you know, when you it's fixed every movement of his, it 
copies and the camera's not moving. Uh, it's not a shot you see a lot of in movies, but it was quite effective. And it really, it reminded me, it harked back to a scene in Mean Streets when uh, Harvey Keitel is drunk at the bar and he's staggering around the bar and the camera does the same thing. Um, one of the scenes that I really did think was well set out was where they're talking about the plan you know, coming up with the plan of how they're going to steal the money and everything they got to do. And it's cutting from them talking about it to the plan going on and back again. And you're wondering when you're watching it, is this really what's happened or is this them imagining how it's going to go? But it's quite an effective sort of back and forth jumping, you know, backwards and forwards. Um, but then with the cat, there's scenes in this that are almost reminiscent of the matrix not scenes but shots and sequences like when they have the shootout in the apartment uh just after the money's gone missing and the the way the camera sort of moves and the action slows down it's almost what they achieved in the matrix you know with the famous shot of him in the air but it's, it's stylish this film is stylish it works really well there is one or two shots that perhaps it didn't need like when Violet phones Corky and then the camera runs along the phone line with this like whooshing sound effect and it follows the phone line into the wall and then out the other side and into Corky's phone. We know how a phone works. We don't need to see the <laughs> the information running through the cable, you know. I thought that was a bit excessive, I suppose. It's a few bits that probably aren't, you know, really believable. The fact that when he, he's trying to cover his tracks or he's trying to find the money, he goes over to the, the Johnny's apartment, the son of the gangster, and he's smashing this bloke's ha- apartment up. Yet he doesn't think to go into Gina Gershon's apartment and sort of look for the money in there, seeing though that it's completely empty at the moment. It'd probably be really easy to find the money. Uh, Violet's giving him all this lip and you think he'd just shoot her. He doesn't need her. Perhaps like their lesbian relationship is a bit, it's a bit too far-fetched, you know, the the amount of trust they have in each other, there's no other reason, you know. You wouldn't trust someone that reservedly, especially if they was both sort of untrustworthy characters anyway, you know. And the line at the end is like, uh, Corky says to Violet, you know what's the difference between me and you, Violet? And Violet says, no. And she says, me neither. You know, it's just all very <laughs> sort of corny. But then it's, you know, that's the, it's their love story. And this is how it ends. Two women escaping from a man's world, I guess, carving their own future. But when you gloss over little things like that, it is a really effective film. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought, yeah, decent. I possibly liked it more than The Matrix. I do, you know, The Matrix is a great film, but I haven't really got into the series of The Matrix. And The Matrix is one of those films that I enjoyed it when I first watched it, but the Every time I've gone back and watched it again, it's sort of lost something. Um, And I think this film as well, great film to watch as a one-off. If you want a bit of sex and violence and a bit of uh, tension uh, and a good sort of plot twists and that, it's it's good. But it probably wouldn't hold up for a second viewing. Okay, so I've chatted now for about 40 minutes. So I'm just going to do the three films this month. So that was... The Sister Brothers, Lucky Number Seven, and Bound. So, yeah, as, as I said, Bound, I thought was really good to watch. Wouldn't be a film I'd revisit again in a hurry, I think, having seen it. 
but there's some great performances, really well made. Uh, Lucky number 11, it was one of those Tarantino-esque films that I just found too gimmicky. There's a few like it. where They try too hard to be clever, they try too hard with the plot twists and the dialogue, and they failed on every attempt, I think done everything in the wrong order didn't achieve what it set out to do so my film of the month has got to be the sister brothers a great western really original probably a film that i would watch again and again and i reckon that when you watch it again you'll pick up more that you've missed the first time round. uh yeah a really great film so yep that's my recommendation for this month uh, out of the films that I own that I haven't watched yet so thanks ever so much for listening please if you want to get in touch with us email us at wnmovietalk at gmail.com or contact us via facebook.com forward slash wnmovietalkpodcast and we'll see you all again soon cheese <laughs>